Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. I've been here for quite some time now. And one of the things I'm sure that you've heard me speak about is that I am a graduate of the Center on Domestic Violence program on domestic violence when I went there at the University of Colorado, Denver. Uh, now it is the program on gender-based violence, so we've modernized that a little bit. And with me is the director of that program, Barbara Paradiso. Welcome, Barb. Thank you, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have been on the show, I think, at least once before, and we talked about the program and how important it is. But there's a special anniversary coming up, isn't there? There is. There is. 2020 is actually our 20th anniversary. The center has been around for 20 years, officially June 1st, but we're we're taking advantage of the entire year to celebrate. Oh, you should. I want to do that with my birthday. I, I think the whole entire year should be a celebration, don't you think? Um, I try to squeeze it into, you know, I, I try to stretch it into a week, but you know, my my kids give me flack on it, but oh well. Um, <laughs> so big anniversary, 20 years ago, domestic violence, interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence, gender-based violence. Those were all very different concepts if they were even spoken of at all 20 years ago. So what set the stage for us? What was going on 20 years ago, and why and how did this program? become a reality? Mm. Well, it, it was a very interesting journey, let me tell you. So we first started to begin hatching this idea around creating an Who's academic program. Pardon? Who's we? You said we. we. Who's the we? We, yeah. <laughs> well, um, myself and Is some other folks. <laughs> it's the royal way, and some additional people who um, who have been doing work in the movement for a long time had been watching sort of the the changes that were taking place across the country, a, a lot of which actually was spearheaded by um, the passage of the Violence Against Women Act in 1994. So, so domestic violence service organizations, rape crisis programs had been kind of limping along um, at that point for about. 20 years in the U.S., most um, programs and sort of this phase of trying to address the problem in our country started in the early 70s um, and were, for the most part, very small nonprofits that were trying to make a difference in their local communities. And then in 94, the Violence Against Women Act passed and, um, and much more money began rolling into programs. And so we saw programs growing in size um, and really in some ways, shifting their focus. So, so me, <laughs> the royal we, and others, um, we're talking about the different changes that we saw happening or taking place um, in the country around doing this work. Uh, and um, for the most part, what that looked like was um, people coming into doing the work who were there, not because they necessarily had a passion for doing the work, but because it was a job and it was a decent paying job for the first time ever. Um, people moving into leadership roles who, um, who had good business skills but didn't necessarily understand the dynamics that went on um, in violent relationships. Um, we saw programs who seem to be moving away from a mission focus and um, around a mission focus, a mission focused on changing the world, on finding ways to address the root causes of violence against women and make that change in our culture. So it was a shift from that to more of a human services organization um, that did a fine job of putting a roof over the head of victims of domestic violence. But but that piece of our work that was really related to revolution about wanting to make change happen for women in our society um, was getting lost. 
and there were a number of us that were very concerned about that um, that, sh that the shift that we we felt was happening um, in the country, and wanted okay, to do something you, about you it. Okay, and you saw that shift <laughs> before um, the start of the program, or you saw that shift what after the passage of the Violence Against Women Act? When 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 did you see that shift from changing the world to just creating social services, if you will? Uh, I think we saw that shift happening in the 90s. Um, so um, timeline-wise, the Violence Against Women Act passed in 94. We started working on developing this program in probably 97, 98. Uh, and... And it seemed like it had been, you know, that had been kind of happening, coming along for a while. Um, this shift is as um, programs became much more institutionalized over time. Okay. So, so I think that, you know, from my recollections of the classes and, and the reading, the, the Violence Against Women Act was really, I mean, it started out as a recognition between women on an intimate basis and individual women would be trying to rescue other individual women. And then they kind of banded together, but the idea of actually creating such programs, you know, where this is addressed on more than just a, uh, an intimate level, a private level. Is that what you're saying is happening in this 97, 98 era? Is that what you're, you're referring to? Um. Well, maybe it'd be helpful to kind of back up because I think you're right. You know, the roots of this work, um, when we started doing this work in the 70s and the early 70s, it kind of came along with second wave feminism. Um, it really was woman to woman. It was people, women sitting down around their kitchen tables, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes at the time, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> talking to one another about I their experiences. <laughs> and gaining support from one another and the you know certainly the domestic violence um movement really began with women opening up their homes to other women who were in need of safety so you know come sleep on my couch you know sleep in my spare room bring your kids you know that's where women originally were getting safe um and then over time small programs began to develop and many of those started in um in the early 70s, 71, 72, 73, um, and we're, we're growing um, slowly <laughs> over the next decade or so. What seemed to shift um, over time is as more resources came into the work and a lot more attention came to the work um, through things like Eventually, the passage of the Violence Against Women Act, that whole process took at least eight years, if I remember correctly, of um, people yeah. trying to get the passage. Um, the bill itself really focused a lot on um, criminal justice response, on law enforcement response, prosecution, um, as well as victim services. So it wasn't necessarily the bill proper, but it was the level of attention that came to the issue and the amount of additional resources um, that came into doing the work. I mean, we're not talking massive resources by any stretch of the imagination, but compared to what we had before that period of time, it was significant. Yeah. So during this whole evolution, if you will, um, we see more public recognition of this as a problem. Suddenly, right. well, not so suddenly, but um, it, it becomes less of a secret thing behind closed doors, between two people that doesn't affect us, and it becomes a little bit more public. Um, people are starting to say, wait a minute, this does happen. We get uh, the Violence Against Women Act, and so we're starting to have recognition from funding levels and, and uh, from uh, community levels and police responses and all that that we hadn't seen before. So. Right. What does that mean for starting a university program? Why start that? Well, the conclusion that we drew um, from what we felt like we had seen and what we felt needed to happen was that, well, it happened on a couple of different levels, I suppose, but it was that there needed to be, we needed strong leadership in place, that that it was imperative if if the original goals, the purpose of the movement to end 
domestic violence, to end sexual assault, those movements in our country, if they were going to be successful, then we needed to have people in leadership positions within every community across the country um, that, that, understand, that understood the need for that change and could build the kind of relationships within their communities that would allow that change to happen. Um, so we needed to have people in leadership that understood the issues of gender-based violence in a very core way and could articulate um, the kind of changes that needed to take place. So in our mind, one of the ways to make sure that happened was to begin training people um, in, to move into leadership positions successfully. And we talked about a number of different ways to be able to make that happen and ultimately landed on developing an academic program because we wanted people, after they had been trained, after they'd gone through an educational program and um, had these strengths, both in skill and knowledge, um, to be able to move into positions of influence. And we felt that was probably more likely to happen if uh, people gained a credential you know, had some had a, a university letters behind their name <laughs> um, than if yeah. they simply had gone through a, a training program, a, a conference, for instance, um, that the exactly. the education would be much more in depth. Well, and that whole you know going along with that public recognition is of, of the of of what the violence consisted of, what domestic violence was, as you point out, there's also that public acknowledgement and respect for the people who know about it. And so when I joined the program, when I went through the program, that was paramount in my mind, that if, if I go through this program and I get this training, I learn this stuff, then with that, I will be able to accomplish some more because I will be recognized as having a certain level of expertise and know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That was my personal feelings. Is that is that how you you see it fitting in with what you were thinking of when you started the program? Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, sort of both sides of the coin. On one hand, hopefully the level of um, expertise that students had gained would be recognized by the general community, and I I do think that that is true, um, that that has happened, and then also. It, it's well won, you know, that students have taken the time to gain a very in-depth understanding of the issues and the work that it takes um, to reverse violence in our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they deserve that recognition um, because they have, they've made that, um, that sacrifice in some ways. You know, it takes mm-hmm. a lot <laughs> to decide to go through a graduate studies program financially, emotionally, in every way, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a certain level of commitment, and um, so, so tell me the kind of students who signed up those first few years. Well, um, you know, it, it it actually has been a very diverse group of students from the very beginning. We've had obviously the one thing that ties them together is that they have a strong interest in making a difference around domestic and sexual violence. Um, but we have people who have come from all over the U.S. and now in many places around the world, um, and they come from a criminal justice background, from a sociology background. Some of them do human services work. Some are accountants. <laughs> some are financial planners. Uh, some are radio personalities, for instance, so um, people who come from a really wide variety of backgrounds, all with a a same vision for making change. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. and one of the things that I saw in my program, and I think I was in, in five or six or seven, I don't know, I'd have to look at the the actual <laughs> date that I was there, um, but one of those years, five, six, seven, um, there were about, I would say about half of us in, in our cohort were advocates. They were already working in this field, and very few were not affiliated with the field in some way, shape, or, or form. Is that what you saw in the early years? Well, I would think overall, um, you know, if, if I were to just, to just describe the average 
student in the program. It would be someone who has been working for the field, in the field for a period of time and who knows that this is the work that they want to do long term. Otherwise, why go through an education? You know, there's lots of different ways to get education to prepare you um, for different fields of work. So um, this going, you know, this deep in this sort of niche, niche area, um, it takes someone who's spent some time thinking about it and really um, believes that they want to do something about this issue on a long-term basis, whether mm-hmm. that means an actual um, job at the field or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, the the we, decided mm-hmm. that there was a reason to start a, a program, to start an academic program, and you don't just pitch a tent and say, okay, here's come to university, my tent, and get a degree. So tell me mm-hmm. how it was to find a home for this program. Well, um, we, uh, we, we started out, um, I was actually working for a private family foundation right around this time period um, that was interested in funding domestic violence work and trying to figure out a way um, for them to be able to make a mark, to make a difference. Um, and uh, we pulled together the board of trustees of the foundation and myself and um, some other leaders in the domestic violence movement came together to brainstorm how that might happen. And... Um, and the conversation ultimately led us to this idea around being able to develop strong leaders for the movement. Uh, and that conversation led to the notion of trying to find an academic partner that would be interested in working with the foundation to create that educational opportunity. So um, the foundation was called the Sunshine Lady Foundation. It was based in North Carolina. Um, it was led by a woman named Doris Buffett. Um, the name might be familiar to you. Doris is Warren Buffett's older sister. Um, and, uh, of course, Warren is, is quite famous for his skill um, with finance. So um, so Doris, um, Doris's mother actually had passed away and had, um, and had divided her estate uh, uh, between her two daughters. And Doris, to her credit, took those dollars and established the small family foundation. So, um, so we began looking for a university that might be willing to partner with us. And I have to tell you, Heather, that was not an easy task. You know, back and so when we're, you know, we're talking about ninety, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, when we were um, searching out institutions. You know, it, domestic violence wasn't even considered a legitimate area of study for the academy, let alone um, uh, a topic that an institution might want to to put a lot of um, energy into. So uh, it was quite an uphill battle. There really were no, no. Um, educational programs that focused on domestic or sexual violence in the country at the time, at least none that we could find. So um, so we began reaching out to, to institutions. We um, actually worked with two other universities over about a two-year period of time, trying to see if we could make it happen there, and um, were not successful um, before actually making a connection here at the University of Colorado um, and ultimately we're able to, to make it happen here. Why so, was there reluctance to start the program? Was it financial? Was it sociological? What, what, why would there be a reluctance? Well, I think, I think bottom line, um, domestic violence was considered something that was a women's issue. Um, as I said, it wasn't, it wasn't a legitimate area of study. There was very little research that had been done on the topic. Um, and that was being done on the topic. So it wasn't, um, it just wasn't considered um, a value, something that was important um, for us to study. I think it was a, you know, it was a demonstration of the times. Things have changed dramatically over the last 20 years or so. But at that time, it just, um, I just wasn't seen. And I think, uh, and, and I have to say, and this is purely my own opinion, but, um, you know, university systems oftentimes are very entrenched in um, history and tradition and I think are very slow in many ways um, to make change around 
uh, around social issues. So it, at least internally in the way that they function, are <laughs> very slow to make that change. So, um, yeah, you know, something has to be proven and proven and proven again um, before it's considered legitimate. So I think decided that it was a legitimate area, and so they agreed to be the home for this new new uh, endeavor. Well, and that was a process as well. You know, we um, by the time we got to see you, we were pretty clear about what it was that we were looking for. I think the only reason why we were considered at all was because the foundation was willing to financially support um, the development of the program, so that certainly had an appeal. Um, when we came to CU Boulder, there was a, a meeting of the deans that was called. <laughs> there were about, I don't know, maybe about eight or ten deans of different schools that were present at the time, everything from the School of Business to um, the School of Public Affairs to the Graduate School, you know, a number of different um, different departments. And, um, and they discussed whether or not there was an interest um, at all and what the best location might be for a program like this. And I, I, you know, I think the stars just aligned on our behalf when it came to coming to CU Denver. We, um, we had uh, CU Denver in the CU system is younger. It's only been around for about 40 years now, probably more than that at this point, um, 40 or 50 years now when the flagship school has been around for 200 years. You know, so there's um, the Denver campus was much more entrepreneurial It was in, in nature, um, partially because of that, um, the fact that it was young, you know, and, and growing still. Um, we had um, the the dean of the School of Public Affairs at the time was a woman who um, was a feminist and who understood on a very core level what it was we were trying to accomplish. Um, the chancellor of our campus was a woman at the time and also understood what um, the goal that we were trying to accomplish. And actually the president of the university uh, at the time was a woman, which is almost unheard of, <laughs> um, at least in our system. You, went, you discovered. <laughs> yeah. So all of that sort of came into alignment to help support the fact that we, um, that we came on board. And we actually started with a feasibility study. I mean, what we didn't decide, yeah, let's jump into this. We decided, let's explore. So we put together a steering committee that was made up of representation from three of the CU System's campuses, eight to ten different departments, um, you know, staff, faculty, and we also had a number of practitioners. So we had people that were doing um, domestic violence work and as you said, we started out purely focused on domestic violence. We had people from um, domestic violence service organizations from across the state, from rural programs, urban programs, culturally specific programs, all sitting around a table talking about what would an academic program that really prepared people for leadership um, in domestic violence work, what, what would that look like um, and how could we make that happen? So it was a, a so two-year like endeavor. Yeah, so it sounds like, okay, you're, you're getting established here, but the program's kind of growing up a little bit. So probably during the first 10 years of the program, that got you to the halfway point to where we are now. What was the biggest struggle that you think that you encountered with the program? Over the first 10 years? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So just pick one. <laughs> You know, I think um, I think legitimacy, not within the movement. I think that what we were doing was seen as valuable by people who were doing domestic violence work, and uh, that the graduates who came out of you know the students that we've had have been just remarkable and brilliant and have gone on to do amazing things and. Um, well done. Yes, and so have. that no. <laughs> yes, and that certainly <laughs> built the credibility of the program within the movement. But I think our biggest struggle was r really getting the university system, the school that we were based in, and the university as a whole, to um, to see our work as valid and important. That that was one of the mm. biggest struggles that we faced. 
And part of that had to do with the fact that we we came in in a very unusual way. <laughs> you know, most centers that are associated with a university are, are created by um, tenure-track faculty, so faculty that are, are deeply embedded in the university system. They get sponsored research, and they create a center based around the topics that they are interested in researching. And... Um, and so, you know, their salaries are paid for by the university. They have a base, basic funding that helps to keep them moving forward, um, and the sponsored research helps them to enhance and grow that. Sometimes it helps to pay their salaries as well. Um, mm -hmm. And But there's a foundation that's laid there, and it comes up through research um, and through the interests of established um, faculty. We came in from the outside, you know, we came in from a private family foundation with people who were um, from the practice community, not from um, an academic institution. And so, you know, at, at the same time that the university had a lot to learn about who we were and who we might, what we might be able to um, provide, you know, how we might be able to enhance the mission of the university, um, those of us who were doing work within the center had to learn about university and academic systems and how they operated and um, what value that brought to our work. So it was a, a big learning curve. Yeah, and, and you have exhibited a great deal of expertise in working within that environment. Um, and I've seen that over the years. You, you have just really, you know, I'm, you're, you're there. You're part of it. Um, I can see where it would be, based on my experience, with academia, I can see how that might be a real challenge um, to step in to that network that seems to be very well established. So that must have been hard. That must have been a big challenge. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the legitimacy and the, the fact that this program started kind of come from coming from the outside in rather than being developed from the inside and then going out. What about that research. You mentioned research. How important was that in the development of not only the program, but the faculty? Hmm. You know, we, um, we started out as a program, so as, a, as an academic program for the first three years, and then we're very fortunate to receive a federal earmark of about a million dollars that allowed us to blossom into a full center that looked at research uh, service and um, and academic programming. And what we tried to do with those dollars was actually um, bring in faculty that were um, that had a research interest in this area so that we could we could develop the center in a more traditional way. We needed to find a way to um, help the center become more sustainable. So the, I should say that the Sunshine Lady Foundation was with us for the first year and then moved on to other topics. So since the, first, the second year of the program, we have needed to find a way to support ourselves um, and keep the work of the center moving forward. So, um, so being cash funded, in other words, that Universities traditionally don't fund centers. It comes through sponsored research or through grants, other sources of funds. So, um, so we were in the position of needing to find ways to fund ourselves. So we were looking for um, bringing in faculty who would be interested in doing research and being able to build a research agenda that was sponsored. Um, so that we became, so that we would look much more like a traditional center um, within a university system, and we actually were not a, we were not successful in making that work. Um, we mm. poured a lot of resources <laughs> into that, but um, you know, for a wide variety of reasons, just and, and I'm not saying it would, couldn't happen, but for us, it it didn't, and um, we have. We've struggled with that piece of our work around how to f how to um, define what our relationship to research is, because you know one of the incredibly valuable things that an educational institution brings to the world is the fact that it can do original research and create new knowledge and really help us to do work 
um, in the field that is evidence-based. So it has some level of proof. We're not just doing it based on our intuition, but there's science behind it. You know, there's lots of wonderful things associated with being able to do research. And since we haven't been in a position, we haven't had the resources to be able to do that ourselves, um, we have finally landed in understanding that the best role that we can play is as interpreter um, and disseminator. So we know that people that are doing um, domestic and sexual violence work on the ground want and need information about good quality research that's being produced and what it's telling us about our work. Um, and we also know that people in the field very seldom have the time or the patience to sit down and read a 20-page research article that's in a peer-reviewed journal that's all in academic ease, you know, and, and very seldom uh, talks at all about how the findings of that research can be applied. So we find out what they learned, but not how we can use what they learned um, from most research articles. So, so we feel, you know, one of the things that the center can do because we have access to that research is to do that reading for people and to translate it in ways that make it very accessible um, to the practice community. So um, that's a big piece of the work that we have taken yeah. on. Interesting. I, I, as you probably know, I, my focus has turned toward research, and that's why I'm trying to finish up my PhD, um, which has taken since Job was a baby. I mean, I just was not prepared for the length of uh, and the excruciating process that that has become. But I'm only sticking with it because I want to do the research. And mm-hmm. my, my research, my dissertation, is uh, comparing women who have experienced domestic violence more than five years ago with women who never experienced domestic violence and how they compare in job satisfaction, job turnover, underemployment, and unemployment. And mm. I've just been, you know, I gathered the data and I've been massaging it over the last couple of months. And it appears that I have a significant level of difference in three of those four factors. Um, again, not earth shake shattering, but, to me, then that's going to hopefully attract some attention of people who say, okay, why? Why is this happening? What can we do to minimize that? Um, And so I I see a great deal of interest in the research. I have a great deal of interest in the research. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the things that really appealed to me about the program was the, the focus on learning more. But this concept of interpreting what's being done out there, because there are a lot of folks, a lot of, of academics, a lot of researchers out there right now, and they are coming up with all sorts of stuff. The idea of having a center of knowledgeable people who are not just book, book knowledgeable, but people who are actually been in the field and who understand it, that's really appealing to me. And I would mm-hmm. think that would be very appealing to potential students of the program. Am I right, or am I on the wrong track? Or mm-hmm. no, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, I, and it's one of the commitments that we've made um, as a center from the very beginning is that we want, you know, when we look for people to teach our courses, what we're looking for is people that are great scholars, absolutely great scholars. They understand. <laughs> they they are well read, understand the research, um, and can bring that to the table, and have and also have practice experience. So they have a context in which to place their learning. You know, the combination is dynamite um, when we can find it. So, yeah. um, so we yeah. search long and it, hard it, for that. And I think, yeah. you know, and I, I think the research that you're doing is really fascinating. You know, I, it's a great demonstration. How often do we hear that that the whole point is for a victim of domestic violence to to leave, that that's the panacea, and that once they've left, everything is roses. When we, yeah. those of us who have worked with survivors, know that the ramifications of violence go on throughout an individual's life oftentimes. And so we need good research that helps um, to explore those issues and teach us more about what we need to do long-term to provide support for survivors. Well, so I applaud you for that. One of the questions, one of the objections to my doing that particular research from my committee was, okay, but even if you find significant differences, 
aren't you worried that employers would use that as a reason to not hire someone? And I went, wow, never even thought of that. <laughs> never, <laughs> never even crossed my mind that somebody would come up with that one, but they did. But anyway, I, that, enough about me. Um, when I started the program, you had two choices, I think. You could get an MPA or you could just take the, the course, you know, as a certificate program, or you could get a master's in public administration with a focus in, at that time, domestic violence. Or I believe they were um, working with, um, just, with uh, police or justice departments, something like that. But mm-hmm. what are, how, how is this program integrating with other spheres and how has that changed over the years? So we we still have a concentration within the Masters of Public Administration degree, and we have a concentration within the Masters of Criminal Justice degree. I think that's probably what you're thinking of. Um, So that concentration has been established. We have a standalone graduate level certificate in gender-based violence studies, and we have a certificate in interpersonal violence and health care. So right now, that's the, the, those are the four academic opportunities that we have available. Um, for students. Okay. And that makes perfect sense to me because I, whenever I have the opportunity, whenever anybody listens to me, which is not nearly often enough, Barb, I have to commit, admit, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that there is, I cannot think of a field of academic study, since we're talking academics, that shouldn't have at least a, a unit or a, 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 a class or something on gendered violence as mm-hmm. part of the study of that discipline. I agree wholeheartedly. And we've had, you know, and we, I think we're making progress in that area. I really do. I, um, you know, there are, there's still not nearly enough, but there are more academic programs being developed all the time. Um, none that are quite the same as what we offer here, but, um, you know, there are more concentrations within social work schools, for instance, um, different programs that are preparing people to do direct service work um, with survivors. So that's happening more and more often. We um, here at CU Denver, where um, the center has been working with both the School of Education um, and uh, the School of Public Health, um, to talk more and more about, um, you know, is there room for developing a certificate of some kind or some kind of um, um, more in-depth studies within those schools around gender violence? I think there's a high level of interest there, uh, and we are invited in. We um, work with doctoral students in physical therapy. We work with medical students. We work with um, uh with the School of Education teaching a number of classes there. So we really, you know, we haven't been able to develop the in-depth programs we want to yet in in um, other disciplines, but it's one of those visions that we have for the future, you know, that we'll be able to, to wiggle our way into every professional school within the university. We'd love to see that happen at some point. Well, you know, we have a local, to me, we have a... Um, Um, uh, School of Medicine, but Alternative Medicine. Um, And I keep, at least once a year, I make a pitch to them. You need to include this in your curriculum. You need to, just because, you know, I mean, if they're dealing with the public, if they're dealing with people with health issues, if they're dealing with, you need to know more about this issue. So absolutely, focus on it. You know, <laughs> you know, if you're touching people's bodies in any way, you need to know about this. You know, when we think about the numbers, mm-hmm. one in three, you know, one in three women, one in seven men. You know, if you're doing any kind of practice where you're touching someone's body and we know that violence gets absorbed into people's bodies in different ways. You know, we, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's, you know, a crick in the neck or back pain or, <laughs> you know, pain from a particular injury, it, you know, emotional pain shows up in the body. So. I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> so I'm pitching. I'm pitching out here for you in the Seattle area. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's, a lot, yeah. some of the, there's some great research being done right now about the long-term effects of experiencing um, domestic and sexual violence on the body. And so they're finding great associations mm-hmm. between things like that we never would have imagined, you know, autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. diabetes, heart disease, mm-hmm. um, 
yeah, and how that is the, all the exacerbated. I can't quote the citation right now because I don't have it in front of me, but the one study that just knocked my thoughts off was that if you experience domestic violence when you're in your 20s, you have a greater, uh, something like a, a fourfold greater risk of cardiac ischemia in your 50s. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. wow, this never ends, does it? This wow. is something that yeah. you carry with you. Meanwhile, for most folks, most victims and survivors, there's an aura of don't talk about it, move on, forgive and forget. And yet, Everything has changed when you've experienced that kind of violence. So I, I think that we, we live in that culture of forgive and forget and move on and be happy and don't dwell on the negative. And that's fine, except I remember seeing a, an MRI of a brain, a healthy brain and a brain with PTSD. And mm-hmm. the images, the, the, the colors, you know, the, the thermography, and, you know, the 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 cut line on the two images side by side was you know brain without you know non um, uh, domestic violence victim brain of vi- domestic violence victim huge differences and the cut line was that's why she doesn't just get over it mm-hmm. and I thought that was significant because I think we do tend to minimize these long term effects so I'm really excited about some of the research okay enough about me we're talking about the program aren't we okay Barb yeah. <laughs> But that is about the program. You know, that's why we need to have really strongly educated, powerful people in leadership positions across the country. And we really, you know, when we started the program, we were really thinking more in terms of who's going to be the next executive director of a service program in communities Mm -hmm. across the country. And, And we've broadened our thinking in a lot of ways, not only, you know, recognizing all the intersections between domestic violence, sexual violence, dating violence, stalking, um, sex trafficking, you know, they're all, you can't pull them apart. They're all so closely related. So we certainly have broadened our understanding there, but we have also broadened our understanding to recognize that people people provide leadership in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be that you're the executive director of a rape crisis program. It can be that you are a nurse that's working in a hospital and has the opportunity to provide leadership for that hospital in how they respond to patients, whether or not they actually take time to look at um, the emotional ramifications of violence and make sure that they're providing, they're meeting the needs of the whole person. Um, when a victim walks through the door, you know, there's just, there's, you could be an activist, <laughs> you know, leadership looks like activism um, in a community. It can look like, um, you know, being the head of a kid's baseball team and understanding that some of the young people that you're working with could be experiencing violence and need to have special attention around that. So it's um, it's it's an exciting world um, right now for us. There is so much yet to learn and so much to do and so many wonderful collaborations to build. <laughs> so okay, so let's talk about faculty. Who do you find to teach these programs? How do they qualify to teach in the programs? Um, how do you develop them? Um, not only for UC Denver but also for this this area of expertise and dealing with students. Tell me more about faculty selection and development. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we start out with the topic area. We have, you know, certain classes that we offer. So we want people who have expertise in that particular area. And, you know, we're, uh, many of us here at the center have been doing this work for 10, 15, 20, in my own case, 37 years. So we um, have had an opportunity to meet a lot of people in the field. And so if we don't know, um, so oftentimes even just by word of mouth, we can put word out that we're looking for someone who is has expertise in law and policy and really understands the deep issues around local, state, national, and international law. Um, so uh, usually that's the way that we that we find people is uh, is by word of mouth or just looking to the the cadre of people that we've had good fortune to work with in the past who might be interested in teaching. The fact that the program is built on a distance learning model helps us in that way um, because it means our faculty also can have full-time jobs anywhere else in the world um, and and teach for us. So it opens the door to, to quite a few really talented people. 
So tell me about uh, the courses that are offered right now. What particular, if I were to uh, enter the program again at this point, what mm-hmm. what options would I have? What what are the courses like? What tell me what we'd be doing if I were to go back? Yeah, well, we um, we actually every. Hmm, I don't know, seven years or so have reviewed the curriculum um, for the program to make sure it's as up-to-date and valuable as it possibly can be. So we've made tweaks to the program along the way. Um, We still believe that this is a multidisciplinary issue, that there's not any one particular field or discipline that has the answer, and that the only way we're going to get to the answer is by working across disciplines. So um, right now we... Um, our core courses, which is a series of four um, courses, um, there's a sociology course, a psychology course, a law and policy course, and then a course in social justice, social change, um, that make up the um, make up our our core um, learning experiences. Um, I think some of the differences you might notice from when you were t- when you came through the program is that we uh, again have really broadened our view. So we really try to look at these issues cross culturally um, within each of the courses. To look at the issues, um, not just domestically speaking, not just within the U.S. but internationally um, as well, and then to look hard at the intersections between different forms of gender violence. Uh, so that we are taking a more holistic view around the issues um, than we have in mm-hmm. the past. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the course- um, go ahead. I was just going to say the courses themselves are hybrids, which means we continue to bring students together um, uh, at the start of each semester so they have time face-to-face, five days, glorious days here in Denver together. <laughs> Um, and then uh, finish up the courses online, uh, actually. So uh, it's a mix of uh, a face-to-face experience, which we find really invaluable because it's a coming together of some um, pretty opinionated, really strong-willed people who come together that are passionate about this issue to learn from one another. Um, and that's, um, you know, builds lifelong friendships, we found, that um, – really have made a difference in people's ability to do great work. Um, and then the majority of the coursework is done online, which makes it, of course, much more accessible to people. Yes, 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 it does make it much more accessible. And um, I yeah, I continue to uh, enjoy online classes and, and continue to do that. And oftentimes I'm asked by people, well, isn't it, you know, isn't it a, a distraction to not be in the classroom and have that interchange? But unless you've changed the program, you do have that opportunity. You have the cohorts get together. You have the students get together. It's not, it's just not every day, right? It's just not right. every week. Yeah. So you do have that ability to create those connections. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> So um, let's tell. I'm, I'm looking at the clock here. Um, so now, now it sounds like the program is well established. It sounds like students are coming from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. How do you think the program is doing now in that second ten years of its development? You know, I think it, it really changed? have the students changed. Have has has you've already mentioned that the faculty in fact has changed a bit. Um, you know, what what how, what's different now? Well, I, I think we really have, you know, if there's a period of time when we've really grown up, it's been over this last ten years. When we've gotten to a place where we've really honed in on what we see as the most important work that we can be doing and the work that we do well. Um and have been able to ca- capitalize on that um, and uh, really sharpen our focus. So we, you know, where we have come to is that we we are about leadership and building leadership. We are about collaboration. We feel so strongly that the way to make change happen within communities is um, by building strong, trusting relationships 
uh, and by inviting voices in from across the community, not hand-selecting the five people who agree with you, um, but bringing people in who represent every segment of your community um, in order to be sure that uh, that survivors' needs across the spectrum are met, um, but also that all, you know, it, everyone in our community is touched, is um, feels the impact of gender violence. Everyone. There isn't anyone who's who can escape that, even if it's just seeing reports on television <laughs> and the impact of seeing a horrific, you know, hearing about a horrific thing that's happened to a neighbor. Um, but oftentimes it's much closer. It's a, a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or a sister or a mother or, you know, someone in our lives that has experienced this violence. Um, so if everyone is affected, then everyone has to be involved in making the change happen. So collaboration is a, a huge um, part of our work, um, helping communities to develop um, strategies around collaboration and then ultimately cultural change. And um, cultural change, or and all of this is uh, you know connected to prevention. It's all interconnected, of course, but um, through collaboration um, and through different prevention strategies, we are able to um, make the kind of cultural shifts that hopefully will bring an end to violence ultimately. That's our focus. You know, that's it's been our mission from the beginning, and now we're just much more clear about the strategies that will get us there. Okay. Um, when you talk, uh, one of the questions that I had for you is mm -hmm. that when I was in the program, it was a domestic violence. It was a program on domestic violence. Now mm -hmm. it's a program on gender-based violence. Can you explain the change, what that means, and why it was why it was changed? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what we, um, well, I think what we, not only we, but I think the you know folks that are doing this work um, across the world have come to recognize is that is that the. Um, the different forms of violence for which women are the primary victims um, all have a root in seeing women as less than, seeing women as others, seeing women as objects that can be used or abused, um, that can be used to help another individual feel stronger, um, to believe that they are in power, <laughs> you know, just, just used. Um, and that those different forms of violence are so um, closely connected that it's very difficult to pull them apart. For instance, you know, we talk about domestic violence, but one of the um, one of the primary tactics that an abuser uses against their victim is sexual violence. So it's not uncommon for an abuser to rape their partner again and again. You know, so are they a sexual assault victim? Yes. Are they a domestic violence victim? Yes. Um, you know, whether it's dating violence or domestic violence, you know, oftentimes young people that become involved in violent relationships as teens have had some level of violence um, as children or witnessed some level of violence um, as children. Uh, you know, it's an age difference. <laughs> you know, we're talking about, you know, going from 18 to 19 or, you know, depending on or 23 to 24, wherever you want to, you know, cut off the mark um, between those things that sex trafficking, oftentimes um, victims of sex trafficking see their, um, see their pimp as their boyfriend. You know, that there's a, there's an intimate relationship. There's an emotional relationship there as well as a physical relationship. So the dynamics can, are, are, different in some ways but very similar in other ways so and there's and there's a central root um, cause that connects each of these forms of violence so rather than trying to silo things in a way that's really artificial we just came to recognize what the truth is <laughs> which is that it's it's the same violence taking different forms does that make sense okay. yes it makes perfect sense um, so tell me, please, um, in this next 10 years, mm -hmm. what about, what, what do the students tend to do now with this training and education? Is it different from what they did 10 or 20 years ago? You know, I think that, I think there's more opportunity now. 
and uh, more opportunity to do this work in different ways. So we have people that are developing um, programs and running programs within hospitals now that you know wouldn't have happened 20 years that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. We have um, a number of our students are actually going on to get PhDs and are doing research in the field, <laughs> um, and are finding jobs. You know, are actually getting hired into um, academic um, university environments, which certainly wouldn't have happened 20 years ago because there was no there was no interest or latitude for that um, in the field. You know, there's just uh, the connections between. Um, violence and the impact it has on people, you know, whether you're talking about a homeless population or if you're talking about people around mental health or physical health, if you're talking about children, about youth, I mean, there's the, in, the intersections are so strong in so many different ways and our society has come to understand that and the ramifications of that violence and how critical it is that we address it in order to bring people to health into their full potential. So it means that there's that there's lots more opportunities out there mm -hmm. than there has been in the past to do the work in different ways. Okay. So you do see more uh, more of the research going on with your students? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It seems like we have more people um, deciding to go forward and get their doctoral degrees and and um, put their energy into doing research than ever before, which is also really great to see. It means that we have we have a really strong future ahead of us. Yes, I, I, I agree, absolutely. So you talked about building leadership and collaboration. And uh, do you also have any what, – what about public education? I mean, I know we're talking a university education here, but mm -hmm. do you see a role – with the program on domestic violence, the Center on Domestic Violence and the program on gender violence as having a more uh, open role, a more um, wider role as far as the public is concerned? I know that I get the emails and I know you do a lot of educational events for the folks that are there. Um, what do you see the role of the program uh, with the general public? Uh, well, actually, the work of the center has really expanded. I probably should have mentioned that <laughs> when you asked what's the, what's the change over the last 10 years or so. So we certainly have our academic programs, which has always been our flagship and always will be. Um, but our service work has really sort of exploded over the last 10 years. So we do a lot of training and technical assistance um, with domestic and sexual violence programs across the country. Uh, on um, on how to do their work really well. Our area of focus is really around um, around collaboration, about how to use collaboration as a strategy for change within your communities. And we've um, partnered with um, some of the major funders, like the Office on Violence Against Women, um, uh, to be able to work with their grantees to help make their work a little bit easier. You know, to to strengthen. Um, their abilities around around collaboration building. So we work with um, primarily with campus programs across the country, and we work with um, rural um, programs across the country to provide that kind of technical assistance. Mm -hmm. The other program that we have, the One Direct Service program that we um, have developed since 2008, and that we continue to do, is a program that we call the End Violence Program, and it. It really speaks to our focus on youth and on prevention. Um, it's a school-based program, so our goal is to build the capacity of K-12 through public schools, primarily public schools. We work mostly in very high-need um, public schools uh, to help build their capacity to both respond to the needs of children and youth that have um, experienced domestic or sexual violence, but also to create um, trauma-informed learning environments so that all students in the school um, really benefit from creating uh, truly violence-free, respectful, um, caring uh, environments in which students can learn. So it's uh, amazing work. In many ways, it's still training and technical assistance. We work a lot with the faculty, the staff, the administration, and public schools um, to help them figure out how best to create 
policies, procedures, services for their students. So their students are in a great position to learn. Okay. Um, you know, we've had, I've been very fortunate to have Dr. Vincent Valetti on the show, who, as you, I'm sure, are aware, uh, developed the ACES study, and, and I'm starting to see more and more focus on the ACES study and adverse childhood experiences. And mm-hmm. one of the most adverse childhood experiences, of course, is sexual assault. Um, so I'm kind of encouraged, you know, when you, you're talking about the, the trauma-informed learning, because that certainly, I think, is where we are all headed uh, to be most uh, effective in dealing with some of the things that uh, some of the people in the world have to deal with. So um, really exciting to hear you talking about that kind of a focus. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal work. It truly is, and it's so important. You know, it's not... Uh, you know, it's it's it, as you said. There's many adverse childhood experiences that affect people's lives. So we're talking about you know probably the majority of students in any school that are dealing with some level of trauma, um, whether that's you know domestic or sexual violence or a car accident or a suicide in their family or heaven only knows what else. So it just it makes sense again for us to increase our education around what it means to really work with a whole person because that's what's effective. Yeah. That's what actually ultimately works, right? So Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, we've talked uh, quite a bit about where you were 20 years ago, where you were 10 years ago, where you are now. But mm-hmm. what's down the road? Let's spend the next 10 minutes talking about what's for the future of the program. Well, we've talked a little bit about our desire to be able to find ways to um, work within the academic environment to impact other fields of study. So that certainly is something that we're working on and hoping to be able to do more of. We actually are thinking about ways to use um, the skill and expertise of the staff here at the center to be able to to make, to to support change, (laughs) to support efforts on a national level. So what, what we see more of, so there are, there are a number of different national organizations that are doing this work. There are, you know, we, we see athletic teams (laughs) who are, who are adding their energy and their resources to this discussion. We see corporations that are adding their resources um, to this discussion um, and see the needs for their own bottom line, for instance, for change to happen. So it's just um, the level of awareness continues to increase and what, and some of what we're hearing is that <clears throat> is that there are few opportunities for people to come together and you and leverage one another's resources in order to make a, create sort of a more um, unified vision for what change could be, and then um, leverage one another to make that change happen. And so part of our vision for the future is to be able to be a, a part of that discussion and perhaps with our um, our skill and our focus around collaboration is to help bring people together and facilitate those kind of discussions for larger um, potential national and global change um, to happen in the future. That would be exciting. <laughs> Tell me what that would look like. Tell me how that would look. Well, um, well, it might look like it might look like. Um, so, for instance, we have been we've been talking with some people that are associated with professional football who um, have gotten approached by a number of different people who do domestic violence work because they've been very open about um, about the work that they're trying to do within their own um, within their own association uh, to make change happen. You know, when we're talking about 
we're talking about cultural shifts. I mean, you know, all of this is so deeply ingrained in each and every one of us, our beliefs around women, men, relationships, the use of power, the use of violence, you know, all of that is so deeply ingrained. It's not as though you can just go and do a 30-minute presentation. Everybody goes, oh, yeah, I get it now, and makes change <laughs> happen, right? <laughs> so it's it's a really long-term kind of process. And so um, – we have heard from some people that they just just personally they get confused about who's doing what. There's so many different people that are doing work in this field. They're being pulled in a lot of different directions. They're not sure what makes the most sense. And so, you know, maybe there is room there um, to have a broader conversation, to bring together the people that are, you know, this circle of people that might be talking to them about different options and say, why don't we sit together and think about what, what really is our primary um, interest? Can we agree upon a primary interest and bring all of our resources to the table to make that happen, um, to be able to better focus our efforts? So that mm-hmm. is, does that help? Does, <laughs> is does that, that a good example? It does help. But yeah. I've really enjoyed having this conversation. I'm looking at the clock going, no, no, it can't be an hour, but it is. Yeah. And, I've enjoyed hearing about the development of the program, what's been going on since, you know, the dark ages when I was there. And uh, I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll come back and talk at the 25th anniversary about where <laughs> where we are. Can you do that? Ab- Put it on oh, absolutely. And I hope actually you'll right. come to Denver and help us celebrate when we have our, our big 20th birthday party in October. So hopefully you'll be able to join us then. I'd like to. I'd like to. We're going to see. So just the final thing. People who are interested in taking the course, people who are interested in learning more, where do they go? Um, well, they certainly can contact us. Our our um, general email address is cdv, so Center on Domestic Violence, cdv at ucdenver.edu. Um, and our website is domesticviolence.ucdenver.edu. So if they want to learn more about us, the website is there and contact information for me and all of our other staff members is there as well. Good. Barb, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing more about the celebration and uh, what's going on with the program. And I must say I'm very happy to be a graduate of the Center (laughs) on Domestic Violence program on gender-based violence. Am I allowed to say the program on gender-based violence even though it changed its name? Yes, absolutely. Okay, good. I'm going to say it. Barb, thank you very much. Thank you You for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 